This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, never a dull moment in Alberta politics. Brian Jean announcing he wants to get back into the race as a UCP MLA for Fort McMurray, Lac La Elon Musk says, well, if $6 billion will deal with world hunger, I'll give you $6 billion, but I need to see a plan. And have you had enough doom scrolling? Has the whole Facebook thing just put you off social media? Is it possible to quit or manage it? We'll get some insight. Interesting times in politics, as always. Uh, and I'm looking forward to this because we have uh, a very insightful analyst joining us uh, to talk about what's going on in conservative politics. We're joined now by Melissa Cowett, who we've had on the show before. She's a conservative strategist, consultant, and writer. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us again. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Shay. Obviously, we brought you on. We were going to talk about the situation dealing with the federal Conservative Party, and we'll get there, but I would love to know what you're thinking about the provincial Conservative situation with the announcement that Brian Jean is seeking the UCP nomination in Fort McMurray, Lac Yeah, no shortage of things happening <laughs> in Conservative <laughs> politics in Canada and Alberta right now. Um, Look, I think it's extremely unusual for somebody to say that they're going to seek the nomination for a party whose leader they are openly um, criticizing. And that's not to say that the criticisms are right or wrong. I think that's sort of a separate issue. But I just find it really strange if if you want to run for a party, but you don't, you can't stand the leader and you said that you want to, you want to run against them in the future. That's just very strange to me. I mean, if you're so um, against what's happening, then start your own thing. And, And I'm not advancing now because I don't think that we want the right to be split in Alberta. But that's just sort of how the news hit me this morning is a little bit confused. And of course, um, you know, he's using communication tactics to try and sort of um, build on the frustrations that exist in the party right now. But that, that would be my high level response to what's happening. I, and I, I don't mean any disrespect towards Brian Jane because he's obviously done a lot for the province, but it's just, it's a strange thing to do if you are really criticizing the leader. No question, Melissa. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, as I was saying earlier, he, he wants to run for the leadership of the UCP party. He needs Jason Kenney to endorse him as the nominee for Fort McMurray, Lac La And the only plank in his platform so far is Jason Kenney has to go as leader. Uh, the position that Jason Kenney's in, what does he do? I mean, he can't duck this. He can't not sign the nomination papers. I mean, what position is Kenney in in all of this? He's in a a tough situation for sure, because immediately, you know, whatever whatever decision he makes, he's going to receive criticism, because if you do it, then you're putting sort of the stability of the party at risk. Some might say if you don't do it, um, you're sort of giving people who maybe already have issues more reason to be angry, sort of adding more fuel to the fire. Um, so I don't know that there's a right decision in yeah. this situation for him to make, but you you make a really good point, Shay, when you talk about the only thing that's in his platform is sort of um, being against Kenny yeah. right now. And, and I actually take issue with that as well, because I think a real problem that we have with conservative politics, both, 
provincially and federally, is, you know, conservatives are often accused of of just being against things versus having solid policy platforms. And it's actually not true that conservatives don't have solid policy platforms. I mean, Premier Kenny had a very expansive one in 2019. Aaron O'Toole put a lot of work into his, whether you like it or not. Um, And so I just, I don't love that either. I think that it's just not a true thing about conservative parties, but it's something that we get branded with. And so I don't think this does a lot to help that narrative at a time where we really need to be changing the channel on how we we structure conservative politics in this country. Yeah, Melissa, you make a good point because we have had a couple of calls and texts already today saying, okay, you can't just be against uh, the premier. What's your plan? What's it going to be better? So, and as I said, it's it's day one. He filed his papers yesterday. So maybe Brian Jean has an expansive platform that he's going to unveil to Albertans as he runs for this uh, riding in Fort McMurray. We'll see. You mentioned Aaron O'Toole. If, if you're running under the UCP, you don't need to have an expansive platform True. because you should be endorsing the party <laughs> under which you're running, right? That's That's just back to how it's strange to me. But anyway. No, I hear exactly what you're saying. Uh, you know, I mean, because but he, he, you know, you know, Melissa, he's tapping into a large segment of the UCP that want to see that party run in a different direction. That's what he's saying. He knows there's a number of UCP members, including MLAs and ministers, possibly, who would like to see things go in a different direction. He knows there's a base of support there. Sure, I just think for um, to sort of jump the gun on that. I mean, there's a leadership review that's happening in the spring, and if you if you want to have. Um, if you want to have strong opinions about that following, then I, I think that's appropriate. But I mean, you're either you're either trying to be a member of the party that um, is building for better, or you're trying to sort of build on existing fractures mm-hmm. for personal gain. So. Okay, let's take a look at what's going on federally, and the parallels are jarring as they t- typically <laughs> are when it comes to conservative politics. Aaron O'Toole uh, has really been laying low following the election, but now there's a lot of speculation that when he comes up with his shadow cabinet. Um, people will be watching closely because he's facing a lot of the same criticism. And again, it's coming from grassroots groups, um, Firearms Coalition, um, anti-abortion advocates saying they felt left behind in the last campaign. How serious is the threat to what he's trying to do with the Conservatives? I think it speaks to, you know, maybe these threats on their own don't pose that much of a challenge. But the idea of what this is speaking to is the larger idea of caucus discipline, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's really important uh, in politics and especially in political movements that have diverse views as the Conservative Party of Canada does. So that's a real challenge that he's looking at. And the reason why I think it's been a bit of a rough go for him is, is, you know, we've talked about this before, he campaigned during the general in a bit of a different way than he did during the leadership, which, you know, can undermine your authority. And I think you know, O'Toole is, is tr- I think, trying to make sure that those grassroots groups um, feel as though they're, they're part of the movement and part of the party. But I think, you know, there, there's evidence from the last election that the country's going in a bit of a different direction. And so he has to balance those two, those two things. And so um, I think it's a caucus, caucus discipline issue largely. And I think it can become a threat if you don't get caucus in line, you know. Yeah. There have been several several former prime ministers and um, and folks who are really experienced in the federal world when the Conservatives governed that really emphasize the idea of caucus discipline. And this isn't a new thing, and it's, it's become a bigger problem as Conservatives have 
struggled to form government because obviously it's easier to to sort of um, be critical of everything when you're in opposition. Mm-hmm. But it, it's something that that's an issue for the party. And I think that Aaron O'Toole has to, at some point, just say, look, this is the direction I'm taking the party in, and I'm going to take it in a direction in consultation with my caucus. But we're not, again, going to get off track of where the majority of Canadians, Canadians who would identify themselves as conservative, are to speak in favor of a select group of special interests. Um, It's not a viable way to run a political party in 2021 um, from where I'm sitting. I I think he's recognized that. Um, And I think a lot of conservatives, as you say, have recognized that. But I think there is that constant push and pull and it cost him on the campaign and a lot of the criticism he's facing now is you changed right in the middle of the campaign with no consultation and you know you talk about the gun issue and he completely changed that it you know mid campaign how important is it him to say this is my line in the sand this is what we're running on this is who we are and I will not change and people can rely on that because he's getting a lot of criticism for sort of changing you know depending on how the wind's blowing I think he has to. I think he does have to put his foot down. He, um, again, is in a difficult spot because he does have these accusations coming that he's he's a flip-flopper given what the leadership race um, showed last year. Mm-hmm. So it would be easier if he, he hadn't changed course, but he did. He saw what was happening in society and tried to respond to that. I don't really think that federally, um, I don't really think that federally there's as big of a risk as split as there is if we're tying it back provincially at this point, because I think that it's quite clear that there's zero chance of winning um, if conservative party is split federally. So I don't, I think that people are talking a pretty big game in terms of that stuff. Um, But certainly I think if there comes a point where people within the conservative caucus don't recognize any conservative principles, which is, I think the sort of argument that some against his leadership are making, then his leadership may be in jeopardy but i don't think we're at that point yet frankly i think that the biggest thing for him is going to be to be a strong leader and provide a lot of direction but do that while working closely with caucus and prioritizing caucus and making sure that his shadow cabinet isn't just a collection of loyalists it's a shadow cabinet that reflects all of the different perspectives of the party but at the end of the day he's the leader and he chooses the direction. And that's not going to be dominated by a bunch of dissenting voices within caucus, and that needs to be made clear. That's encouraging. I think, you know, if if conservatives can get on board with a plan like you're talking about, where they can have the dissenting views, they can have the dissenting opinions, they can have those discussions in caucus, uh, and, you know, at different conventions and things like that, but when it comes time to present a united front to get elected, they're all on board. Um, that's the best of both worlds, I would think. I think so. And we need there to be those voices because there's, you know, populism doesn't just work on the right. It can work on the left as well. And so you cannot have a political party that is just totally not different from the liberal party. Like the conservatives do need to continue to be conservative. Otherwise, what's the point? So there there do need to be those voices that, that remind people to sort of avoid the populist trap of just doing everything the liberals are doing because that seems to be working well. Um, so I think those voices are important and those voices should be valued, but they're not dominating the conversation. And I think everybody who's in that spot within the caucus has to recognize their role in, in keeping the party together and preparing it for the next election. And if you want to dominate the conversation, that's, that's really not conducive to winning the next election, um, whenever that may be.
Sounds so simple. We'll see if it holds. Simple, yeah, my armchair quarterback perspective here. <laughs> awesome. We appreciate it so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for joining us again. That's Melissa Cowett, who is a conservative strategist, consultant, and writer. And, you know, that, that that's the logical approach here. And we've seen um, that, that's what Aaron O'Toole is trying to do. I think, uh, you know, there's a there's a large segment of the Conservative Party of Canada that has recognized, okay, if we want to be elected, we're going to have to change our position on some of these issues, not abandon our positions, but moderate them, soften them, be more willing to compromise on some of them. Um, and there's some people who don't want to see that happen. So that's the battle that's being waged within the federal Conservative Party. And it is very similar to what's going on in the provincial Conservative Party. Very much the same thing. I mean, Jason Kenney was caught in a position where he didn't want to do a lot of the things that he felt he had to do in the face of a pandemic. Um, And he couldn't convince many members in his own party to say, you know what, this is not what we want to do. This is tough medicine, but it's what we have to do. Instead, he had a number of his MLAs sniping at him and saying this is the wrong thing to do. Um, and I think those discussions behind caucus doors are great. That That's part of the process. But for me, if you're the leader, you make it clear, okay, we've had the discussion. I've made the decision. When we go out on the steps and talk to the people of Alberta, we're all singing from the same uh, hymn book. Elon Musk saying, okay, you guys keep saying billionaires could solve world hunger on their own. I got $6 billion. Show me your plan. How do we do it? Um, Interesting move by Musk because I think he feels a lot of the pressure of, hey, you've got so much money you could solve all the world's problems. And he's saying, well, I will if you show me how we can do it. Now, can you really solve world hunger with $6 billion? Musk says, if you can, here's the $6 billion. Let's get it done. Um, Let's get some insight onto exactly what $6 billion would do against the problem of world hunger. Joining us is Dr. Evan Fraser, director of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. Uh, Dr. Fraser, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. So, $6 billion to solve the world's hunger problem. Is it that simple? Is it $6 billion and this problem goes away? (laughs) Well, no, of course not. And, (laughs) hey, thank you, Mr. Musk, for opening this conversation up. He was actually responding to something that the head of the World Food Program, that's a UN agency that delivers emergency food, uh, who this head of the World Food Program a couple days ago said, if all the billionaires of the world gave $6 billion to, uh, to me, the World Food Program, I could save lives. Right. And I, I think Mr. Musk was, was sort of calling uh, the head of the World Food Program out and saying, okay, I'll do it, but you have to show me a plan. Yes. And, of course, spending $6 billion, uh, you know, the World Food Program could use that money and could feed people uh, – in the developing world that are facing acute hunger today, and that would be a good thing. And it would do nothing to solve the longer-term issues of world <laughs> hunger, of course. Um, what is the situation around world hunger right now? Um, you know, of course, it becomes a, a global cause from time to time. What is the state of world hunger right now? Yeah, it's, I'm so glad you asked that question, because this is really, really interesting. Um, today, there's about 820 million people who are chronically undernourished on the planet today. Okay. And, and that's a big, big, big number. And the other thing that's really worth mentioning here is, you know, I've, I've had, my career's been going back to the 90s. Every year up from the 90s up until 2015, that number was coming down steadily year after year. But in 2015 and every year since 2015, 
the number of hungry people on the planet has gone up. So we were down well below 800 million seven years ago. We're now up back up over 800 million. So something is going very wrong with world hunger in that this is an area where we're falling behind on it every year. I mean, I was looking at the data in 2016, 2016, thinking, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's a blip. 2017, 2018, can't really argue it's a blip. 2021, the hunger reports came out from the U.N. just a few months ago. It, it's a trend. So we're losing track and losing pro, losing against um, against the, that 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 standard, and and it's really it's really worrying. Yeah, absolutely. So, like you say, uh, the Musk discussion this week has certainly opened the conversation, which which is great. So, I think most people understand that you know a one time cash injection of six billion dollars isn't going to solve the problem. What would you know if there was a plan that you could present to Elon Musk and other billionaires and say, okay, um, this is sort of a strategy that we think would actually have long term lasting results? What would it look like? All right. Well, I mean, a it's complicated, and I I, I don't think it's one that can be solved by by just by just spending our way out of the problem. There's three real, I think there's three real drivers as to why we have so many hungry people on the planet and why we're losing ground. And, and it's, it's climate change, it's conflict, and it's wealth inequality. And so, you know, about a billion people on the planet are small-scale farmers, largely in the developing world, largely in, you know, around the equator or tropical areas. Uh, so those people are most exposed to conflict, and as soon as an army starts moving through an area, food insecurity skyrockets because the first thing to go is the ability to harvest a crop. Second thing, climate change is reducing the productivity of those areas faster than it's reducing, say, the productivity of places like Canada. So, and then third, uh, you know, we've, we've had 20 years almost of uninterrupted wealth inequality where the rich yeah. have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. And, and the fact that Elon Musk can, can, you know, say I can just write a check for $6 billion, that's no problem, is actually a symptom of the problem that's led to this situation in the first place. And that's the fact that there's about a billion people on the planet who cannot afford a, a basic standard of living. So to solve those problems, we have to mitigate climate change. We have to invest in conflict resolution and peacekeeping activities. And we have to, we have to tax the wealthy and, and, and redirect that money to create floors below which people can't fall. Uh, in, in Canada, where we've got a very serious food insecurity problem, as well as internationally, where, where the, what was what we're talking about today. It's a huge problem. I mean, and we're looking at a very simplistic solution. Uh, obviously, it's not realistic. But like you say, it's important that we have this discussion because, you know, as I was saying earlier, I mean, you know, you, you hear about famines and, you know, I mean, there's been some talk about what's going on in Yemen that has occasionally made headlines over here. But it's not in the headlines the way that it is at other times. But it never goes away, right? No, it's it's one of those hidden creeping problems that's like I said, getting worse every year for the last seven years, six years. Um, and I guess the other thing I'll say is, you know, to bring it home, you know, over the last two years, we've gone from a situation where pre-pandemic, about one in ten Canadian households were food insecure. We're now about one in seven Canadians are food insecure, and I, I work a lot with some. Um, folks in food banks and what's called the emergency food sector, NGOs and community groups that distribute emergency food to families in crisis. And, and they've never been busier. And, they, and, and the federal government has stepped in and provincial governments have stepped in to support those during the pandemic. But we're, we're, really, you know, we're really facing the same problems that we're talking about internationally, uh, domestically and locally. And it's, it's a problem in all of our communities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we need, to, we need to be mobilizing resources to address this. And I, I think this means that we need programs um, 
well, goodness, I mean, there's so many like programs run by local schools, just grassroots stuff to get kids that uh, food that they need, you know, when they come to school hungry. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the last election campaign about uh, about creating national school nutrition programs, which I think would be another really important step in addressing this uh, domestically. And we also have to, of course, be thinking uh, globally. And I, I'm really grateful for, for the debate this week yeah. because it allows us to talk about these things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an important discussion. Doc, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Hey. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. You bet. That's Dr. Evan Fraser, who is the director of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. Right now that we're going to have a discussion, where are you on the whole social media thing? With the Facebook data leaks and all that sort of stuff, uh, I know a lot of people out there really were taken aback by what they learned and sort of um, are taking a more critical view of social media and the role that it plays in their lives. And some people have straight up quit and walked away, which is uh, which is a bold move. I don't know if I could do it, especially doing what I do for a living. But a lot of people are. Some are trying to manage it. It's not easy to do, though. We're going to have a discussion about that now with Shannon McDonald, who is a communications professor at the University of Waterloo. Shannon, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, uh, there's certainly a lot of people out there who have decided that they've had enough with social media and they're walking away. But that's really, really difficult to do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is for a lot of reasons. One, it's the way in which we're staying connected with each other, uh, especially when we maybe can't see each other in person. Um, but also a lot of people's careers are tied into um, how they, where they circulate on social media. Um, and social media itself is built to make it hard for you to either manage how much time you're spending there or to give it up. I mean, it's addictive at its core, right? Yeah, we know that. We know that, like, all of the kind of design mechanisms built into it, the like buttons, the reshares, all mm-hmm. of that stuff is actually built with addictive properties to keep you hooked. And and a lot of people in research are beginning to talk about how the addiction within social media is very similar to other kinds of addictions we face as a society. Yeah, I mean, they've done some work around that when you talk about drugs or alcohol or whatever the case may be, it, it triggers a similar physiological response. Yeah, it gives us a, do- a dopamine hit. Right, yeah, exactly. So it's really yeah. similar. Yep. It keeps us coming back. Um, now, this mm-hmm. Facebook situation that we've seen over the past couple of weeks really upset a lot of people. But, you know, I'm sure for somebody like you who's been studying these issues for a while and, you know, people who have been paying attention, it didn't really come as a shock, right? We sort of knew the negative effects that social media has been having long before these Facebook revelations. Oh, yeah, I know. This wasn't a surprise to any of us who've been studying this. We've been talking about this for decades. But I think that um, the fact that it's coming into the public and becoming a part of a public conversation is a really good thing. Um, And when you talk to people, and what do you think sort of caught their attention? Is it it the mental health impact? Is it the damage to society and democracy? I mean, what seemed to be the thing that sort of shifted the needle in the last couple of weeks, do you think? Yeah, I think those are two of the key ones. I think that the way in which it's producing divisiveness online, uh, the way in which we're seeing a lot of a lot of hate and a lot of anger coming out in our feeds, uh, probably is turning a lot of people off. And then that is tied to mental health. So those are two of the key concerns. I think also data privacy, not having any transparency over what happens to our data when we are online, especially in places like Facebook. And then I think also that kind of that element of misinformation is really turning a lot of people off. We don't know what source are sort of accurate anymore, and we're getting that information overload. And we know with what's coming out with Facebook that they're promoting 
specific kinds of things to keep us hooked that maybe aren't necessarily accurate. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we all know how that turns out in the end. Um, so we see yeah. some people, you know, big name celebrities saying, you know what, I'm just walking away. It's too toxic. Um, that's a great way of doing it if you can, right? I mean, if you can just sever all ties with social media, may seem drastic, but probably best for your health. Yeah, and I mean, I wonder if coming out of the pandemic and we begin to kind of go into real life spaces again, if we want to maybe explore that. Like, yeah. what is what what does the not online world offer us that the online world isn't? What, well, how do we kind of embrace that? I wonder if that's a, a way into this as well. You know, and then there's talk that other people have about managing it, and we know that Apple puts in the screen time thing. And, and Sarah's told me that TikTok has a thing where it tells you if you've been on for a long time. To me, that strikes me as the time Ozzy Osbourne went to the Betty Ford Center because his wife told me it would teach him to drink like a gentleman. You know, when when, when you're talking about something that's this addictive and destructive in so many ways, can you really, really manage it, or is it an all or nothing approach to this? No, I think we can manage, and I think that's the more realistic approach. I think that everybody has to find their own way to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you do have addictive habits that are coming out in online spaces, there are, like, therapists, and like you can go and, and deal with that in a, in a healthy way. But for the majority of us, we can probably set some firm boundaries for ourselves. Maybe you just don't bring your phone into your bedroom. Maybe you make sure that, you know, certain apps are locked at certain times of day yeah. for your productivity. Like, I think we can all find ways to be to be healthy and balanced on the internet. We just have to recognize what our flags are. We have to recognize when we've gone too far, when we've scrolled for too long. And that's okay, we're all gonna do it. Um, but you know, breaking that, the cycle of that habit I think is important. Yeah, and, and it's like any other addiction. Some people will find uh, more success than others and it'll take more extreme approaches for others. Yep, and I think the place we wanna spend the most time thinking about that is educating our kids, making sure that they have really strong digital literacy. Uh, understandings of how to find their own boundaries and and to kind of know when you're going into to danger zones with your social media use. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks so much, Shannon. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Shannon McDonald, communications professor at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. <laughs>